Eric Steves, welcome to the Inquisitor podcast. Thank you. Um, would you mind giving us maybe 60 seconds on your history so that people understand your background and why sure. you're qualified to be here? <laughs> Thank you. So I learned the nuts and bolts of business the hardest way possible because I thought I had to prove myself with, you know, work. And that led to a, let's call it, set of chops that gave me the ability to understand how to give customers what they wanted the way that they wanted. And really the very first place that I learned that was calling people on the phone to convince them to do the consumer confidence index, where I learned everything that you're not supposed to do. And then I did a full classical, like with an apprenticeship, plumbing apprenticeship and learned how to run plumbing businesses. And once oh, I knew wow. how, how to run plumbing businesses, which I learned the most important thing I'd ever needed to about business, which was you don't get rich unclogging their kitchen sink. You get rich being the only person they would trust to unclog their kitchen sink. And then I leveraged that into the junk removal business for about a decade on and off and learned the art of B2B selling because it wasn't that we were taking their stuff away. We were returning their commercial real estate to them during the height of the real estate boom. And then I got to learn how to use things like search and marketing and how to teach teams how to sell. And about probably three years ago, I discovered Salesforce from an under the hood perspective. I had gotten so frustrated wanting a particular outcome as an in the field salesperson and not being able to get it. And the administrator said to me, well, then why don't you become the administrator? And so I did. And then um, I realized that I didn't just want to be an administrator, but that I wanted to leverage that CRM into that same shield and battle thing that the clipboard is to the in-person salesperson. Okay, so let's start with the billion-dollar question, or uh, for Salesforce, probably the trillion-dollar question. Why is it so many CRM systems are just packed full of total horseshit data? and structured in such a way that salespeople see it as an obstacle to them doing business instead of the brilliant tool that it should be, um, which is a way of helping them sell more and more often for more money to more people more frequently. And instead, it does the opposite. Why? Because of how it's sold and who they sell it to. They're okay, selling so it... Let, let's start with how it's sold, first of all. Yeah. So it's sold as shorthand for a, predict a predictable series of outcomes, but that's a flawed assumption because it's kind of like saying to a person, we've sold you the skyscraper that let's say Salesforce does business in. Now your company will be able to be Salesforce. It's like, no, you just have the building. And the real issue is that the particular people that they're selling it to in a company are the ones who have an interest in predictability and in uniformity and it's in an audit function they're selling precisely and the people that are in the field are required to deliver a transformative result with an audit function and the the particular activity that a lot of the people using a crm need to be doing is outside the box thinking when in fact it's just a box where thinking goes to die in most organizations <laughs> and the data that you see in there i would describe as noise more than anything and when you're on some of the bigger data projects for companies it can really feel like 
digging up a pile of sand and then moving it this way and then moving it that way. And you'd be amazed how many people will politely clap and give you a check to do that. But I kind of saw that like from the lowest user, if you can actually get a perspective of what people need from it, you could even gasp, be thinking about your customer in the CRM. Lord, no, you can't do that. Why, why, why would you want to think about your customer? Because that's who actually pays you. Really? <laughs> Good God, I thought there was just this inconvenience at the end of a long chain of abuse that we, you know, uh, we, we chuck stuff at them and then take their money. And they should be grateful. Good God. The mark. Yeah, the, the mark. And, uh, but, but I mean, with our brand, tell me this. You've got so many sales organizations out there, and I've sold this stuff for ne- nearly two decades, you know, sales methodology. And what I've come to realize is most of these sales methodology are much of a muchness. The r- real issue is how do you map your sales process to their buying process? And how do you make sure that everything that you do, or all aspects of your business, have a window to the customer? And I'm guessing the central system of record, the CRM, should be the facilitation tool. I think that it could be. I think that very few organizations even think that that's a thing that they should do. I think that their highest aspiration for it is compliance to a particular system and then the ability to vet the outcomes of that system and to just establish that things are even happening. In other words, basic management function that should be able to be achieved without the system of record. Okay, that's basic supervisory function. Sure, supervisory. And that's that's driven by a command and control mentality, which is all about creating accountability. And the very reason you need accountability is because you do not trust the outcome or the people who are designated to deliver that outcome. Precisely. You've made the very worst assumptions about the people, and then you've enshrined those assumptions. So no, no doubt. And that, that builds trust very quickly. So again, you, you have a blank sheet of paper. I'm bringing you into my organization, and I'm one of these slightly more evolved uh, human beings. What advice would you give me in terms of doing my evaluation for the CRM? The first Let's thing with that. Yeah, the first thing I would want to know is who is like your most favorite customer, really? Like, and we could talk about ICP if it's like at a big scale. But I'm hoping that they know of a particular person and a particular account and that they can recall the story of how that person went from not knowing about the company to being delighted by the company to maybe if you're lucky and you're a good B2B service person to making the life of their business just better by your presence in it. And if they have a story about who that person is, then I have a toolkit kind of like you know, a painter's palette to capture that in their system of record, reverse engineering from that outcome. How interesting, because I'm currently working on how can I use machine learning, AI, whatever you want to call it, in order to be able to map automatically the customer journey, both pre, during, and post-sale. Interesting. Okay, so let's take this a little bit deeper. So what's actually possible today with Salesforce? It sounds like a cop-out answer, but honestly, almost anything. The reality is that 
it is the steel frame of the skyscraper. Like just like in the 40s, we invented a skyscraper and it fundamentally changed how many floors you could put on a building. Because of the nature of the multi-tenant data ecosystem that Salesforce has and the way that Salesforce uses data, it's positioned to even survive disruption in like, let's say, for example, the move from outbound to PLG or PLG to outbound. And for people who don't know what PLG is? Product-led growth. The notion being that the buyer determines the cadence of the journey more than the seller, I guess, at its simplest. Absolutely. But taking it to what's possible with Salesforce, what I would say is possible right now with Salesforce, if I were trying to paint like a moonshot picture, is you could have a series of communities that you have identified a person with a problem and a mission to invite that person on. You have created in one of these digital surfaces, whether that's a social platform, whether that's a dark social network, but you have an awareness of a community based on who they are and what they do and what's important to them. You have the ability to novelly iterate delightful new outcomes for those people based on what's delighted other people you've worked with. You have the ability to then transform that delight into an ecosystem of people caring about what they're doing together and then delivering an impact to those people that you can predictably explain to other people and in fact even teach them how to do it based on what worked and what didn't assuming of course you have discipline in there okay so to take that to up, up a notch is it possible if uh well even better how possible is it today for multiple partners within an ecosystem that operate in adjacent spaces and they're collaborating, they're cooperating, they're co-developing product together and with the customer and so on, because they sell into the same addressable market. How possible is it for them to share information across their CRM, whether they are in Salesforce or not, so that those adjacent providers can share intelligence about accounts that they are targeting collectively. That's entirely possible. Specifically, the idea would be you use a product that um, is a portal and Salesforce now has flexibility in their licensing such that you can provide AP access to users that you grant to provide that use case. But in a way simpler iteration, what you could think of is like, Let's say you and I each have our ecosystem of sales that we're participating in, and we decide that we wish to just casually on a handshake basis share opportunities as we're out networking. I meet a, tr the traditional way, like where I meet a person that's not right for me, but they're right for you, or you do X and I do Y. Mm -hmm. I can call you up and say, Marcus, let's just share an opportunity split. Like I'll just add you and I'll add a campaign and I'll add there. I guess what I would really say is without getting into all of the the lingo of Salesforce, because I feel like you lose people pretty quickly. The notion is that you can create these sort of portals between these rooms. If you would think about it like a building, like in the Renaissance, when they had to remember whole libraries, they would do the mental palace. Mind, mind palaces, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like, do that with your CRM and think about, you can build a door for your friend that's just this like cool little stand for your mutual lines of business and where they can come out. And the other thing that people don't use it for that they could for this is 
not treating every single contact like a potential customer, but having an actual awareness and, and tactical orientation toward ecosystems, partnerships, channels, all of those revenue streams that for some reason get so ignored by like the bigger revenue minds out there. You know, Have you come across Edster? No, sir. Yeah, I'll put you in touch with the boys over uh, over there because uh, Ebster does something beautiful within RevOps, uh, within the Salesforce ecosystem. And they map all communication through all comm systems, including the CRM, email, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, you name it, and going back three years, 10 years, to uncover the engagement levels on every single relationship that the business has ever had. And what that does is gives you granular and very specific information as to, first of all, what's latent and hidden within um, the communication because it's not in the CRM. Averages, if I remember rightly, something like 42% of your current pipeline that's published on top of uh, is just hidden away in emails and texts and things. And what it also does is give pinpoint accuracy uh, in terms of forecasting. So you don't have to listen to the sort of usual works of fiction and fibs because salespeople are trying to keep their mortgage paid. Well, what this does is it helps them make more money because it tells them which of their deals are at risk and seven ways that they can get them back on track and seven ways that they are at risk on every single relationship. Now, That's transformative, isn't it? So I'll put the two of you together because you could clearly do something with that. But what's really, really interesting is as you start looking at these uh, technologies that weren't available even three, four years ago or 10 years ago, when a lot of today's leadership were going through the ranks, I don't think a lot of analog natives really understand what technology is capable of because our imagination is out of focus. And what I'm more hopeful of, because I see a lot more millennial managers coming through the ranks, and it's only anecdotal, so I don't know for sure, but millennial managers have grown up with technology just as part of their day-to-day. It's just part of life. So they haven't had to make space for it like I have, kicking and screaming, just objecting every time I have to buy another piece of technology I don't understand and I'm fearful of. (laughs) Yeah. Now, your generation, maybe they're not great with it, but they, they've lived with it. And so you think differently. Your imaginations have wider scope, I think. And what I've also seen is a shift, particularly thanks to the pandemic, it's been a catalyst because people have realized, you know, I don't have to be bullied and brutalized. There is more to life. And a couple of weeks ago when, is it David Solomon's, the Goldman Sachs, their CEO, you know, edict saying everyone had to come back to work and half didn't. And yeah. Yeah, even three years ago, the idea that any of them would have decided to do that. And our mass, they've decided enough is enough. It feels like coming home for people. Like, because I mean, I consider you someone like me who said, I'm willing to live out in the wind of consequences because what I get in exchange for it is the ability to sleep at night and be happy about where I'm going. And I think that there, it feels like coming home to have the rest of the population 
by the consequences and say, I'm fine with that. I'm willing to go my way and no longer live in this fear that they needed to, you know, almost achieve like a a paternalistic relationship with their employer. You know, there's no more illusions of that after the pandemic. That's, That's definitely been shattered, that paradigm. I think what it also did was it shone a very stark light on the deficiencies with middle management. Because, and again, I'm not trying to give them a kicking here. It's genuinely that half of them probably, certainly in the UK, 2.4 million managers, so that is roughly covers half the working population, were accidental managers. They came in one morning and were promoted, and they weren't expecting it. And that was their runway into the job. So naturally, they don't really know what they're doing a lot of the time. And because our working culture is one where if you show weakness in many cases, that's probably the kiss of death. Um, So you become brittle. Your ego becomes very fragile. You become defensive. You persecute. You bully. You beat the table a lot. You beat people with carrots. And in doing that, you miss out because you become a bottleneck. And it's very easy for you then to become the person who people go to for solutions instead of empowering them to come up with them. So I'm curious because I'm hoping that it's not that just you're incredibly well preserved, but you are significantly younger than me. So I'm curious in terms of your experience of going through sales over the last 10 years, have you seen any positive evolution in the way management Uh, operates? Or are you still seeing it being very much command and control instead of inquiry-led? I do think that I want to be clear that I think in startup culture, there are potential little pockets that are outliers that that go against this. But I think that the reasons you had this like cosmic explosion of people going out on their own as one and two-person agencies all over the place, and I include myself in this, was because the management that we were looking for wasn't going to come from the institutions that we had been managed in before. We were going to need to learn to manage ourselves and to be, I would describe it as a community of co-conspirators working for the good of our customer. Right. So I, I was about to ask about this because I am seeing an explosion of these ecosystems and communities Uh, that are high challenge and high support. Um, And I I have to say, I'm really excited to to be invited into them because I feel like this fuddy-duddy old outsider. And there are a couple of them that are between 1,000 and 3,000 messages a day. It's noise to me, let's be honest, and I'm not participating actively. But uh, what what I'm amazed by is whenever you ask for help, it's there and it's instant. And that has been our superpower as a species. Why are we not tapping into this? Well, I think that people are. And I think that um, if you look at, there's a lot of fantastical thinking about Web3 like there is with a lot of new technology. But we might need to explain Web3 because some of us are a little bit backward on that, but come back to it in a second. Yeah. So what I would just say is that one of the big things that's coming down the pike is a zero trust ledger, where besides just that like Woodstock feeling we were just talking about, where people swarm in and help, there's actually a way to quantify and actually qualify too 
the potential in those networks and to um, much like if you thought about like the origins of like stock exchanges where they were able to generate this expansive abundant growth from collaboration through a mutually agreed game DAOs in particular are a way that you can have communities have a democratized decentralized system of priorities and system of distribution and so, so what, what did he call that DAO DAOs yeah DAOs yep yeah and with without getting navel gazy about it, the thing to understand is that we let's say we took one particular WhatsApp channel that we're in that has like I don't know hundreds of people in it that are all aligned around whatever SaaS sales. Let's say you could potentially put a DAO in place where everyone connected is able to basically make decisions together and then like sort of put a vector to that group when you want to. So if you said, for example. I wanted to start up a group of my friends that when we have ideas for companies, but that we don't have capital and we don't have the ability to quit our day job and just run with them, but I'd love to see the idea come to life in the universe. Uh, a managed Web3 community like a DAO, for example, has the potential to allow everyone to, without having to wonder if it's a scam, share their idea to that community to know that it gets documented in a way that it's protected in time and space and in that community and then so allow your friends you. yeah and allow your friends to run with it and have a mutual understanding of how you're going to share the benefit of it right so you agree up front how uh, the spoils will be shared out if it ever comes to anything and it's on the basis of contribution yep and with, with voting you know it's not just sitting and watching, but voting. That's the big part. It's like that component of social media that's just a dopamine casino where we're all sitting watching the thumbs up, thumbs down, where we're running like hamsters on a wheel to get the likes, where we're having the part of our brain that's tied to our biosurvival about our ability to matter to a community. That's what social media is really like plucking the string of in all of us, even the strongest mentally and spiritually. And what's coming down the pike is a new evolution of social media where all of that monetary benefit and intangible power from that viscerally powerful psychological connection could actually be returned to the users of the community rather than the value extractors who own the place. Right. Okay. So that, oh Lord, that's opened up the proper can of worms. How exciting. Okay. So explain a little bit more about Web 3.0, just so people get uh, to grips with that first. So the main thing to understand with Web 3 is that it's in this space still a solution looking for problems. It's a level of, it's a basic strategic technological organization of how you distribute content and how you build content that the ownership is not the best way to describe it is that Facebook doesn't own your community. The community owns the community. And right. that has, yeah, so, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, but if I understand it correctly, if I'm looking back for a parallel, this is where people have created disruption at an intersection. Yeah. And that's exactly what you're describing here, isn't it? You're, you're creating the intersection between the ability to attribute or attribute, sorry, the ownership of the idea 
to the ownership of the development of the idea and creating a contractual platform so that it can not only be uh, tracked but enforced if necessary and all the agreements have happened up front to avoid downstream disagreement. Yeah, and the the sort of word you'll hear a lot is zero trust when you're talking about that. And the idea being that the users don't have to themselves verify, did this go somewhere? Is this safe somewhere? The understanding is by using that particular technological modus operandi, the, the trust is now removed from the equation. And what that really comes from is a central, or I'm sorry, a decentralized ledger like a fractal node, if we were looking at an image. So this is blockchain, NFTs, all that kind of stuff. Correct. Right, okay. So for the audience who may not understand what the blockchain is, can you just give a, a, an eight-year-old's uh, version of that? A blockchain at its simplest would be like, there's this central ledger of math equations. Well, so like, I'm going to kind of confuse the definition with cryptocurrency for a second. But basically, a blockchain is a single continuous node in repository of mathematical computation that can be mathematically proven to be related, kind of like a strand of DNA. And at the same time, it is mathematically structured such that the complexity could increase almost infinitely. As far as we're concerned, we could say infinitely. So what that would look like is if we were rolling out from a zero point and we were calculating this one native equation and then adding subtle iterations to it, we could all agree that it is still the same equation. We wouldn't have right. to. Okay, so basically there's an audit trail back to its origin. Right, and because there is this centralized ledger, the the informatic disruption that comes from that is like a lot of the things, like for example, law, surveying, banking, medicine, they rely on practices that are very elegant that were developed over hundreds of years, like from the 1500s through now, to basically be able to achieve that outcome, but without this technology. And the idea would be that computationally, the blockchain allows an enshrining of these techniques that no longer requires that baseline labor. So almost like how a computer is using numbers to model the universe, whereas there are people who can use an abacus to do it or like beads on a table. It's just a centralization of an awareness mathematically that then leads to a unique novel framework in terms of trust across information. The, the, the provenance is irrefutable, is effectively. Precisely. Yeah. And so like I, for example, was, my dad was a surveyor and I used to work with him in the summers when I was like in middle school and we'd be out measuring these things. And I couldn't really understand what we were doing until when we returned the documents, they explained to us that what you're doing is you're confirming that this piece of land is the piece of land that they say it is and that it's where they say it is and that all the land in relation to it. And that basically there's this line going back to whatever the first survey is where people were saying, okay, I officially stamp this piece is correct. And then the other person goes ahead and verifies that and then adds their piece. That is pretty much exactly what a blockchain is, but just happening okay. in a mathematical ecosystem. Okay. And uh, NFTs, what are they? So a non-fungible token is a tiny little node of such a thing as a blockchain that is unique itself and can therefore be 
non-fungible, in other words, you know that you personally are holding the thing you say you're holding, the irony is that they are, as a thing you experience, not the person holding the NFT, they're usually like an 8-bit digital, they look like a throwaway thing. And I would describe them honestly as more of a philosophical thing, if we're being honest, because the way they've been used so far is for speculation, almost like a piece of art is used to like, let's call it launder money. But at the end of the day, they, they're they going to have a really important impact when we talk about things like DAOs, because though an NFT and a coin aren't the same thing exactly, you can think of an NFT almost like one single coin of some unique currency that you're so trying that's to like say. a penny as opposed to a pound. Yeah, but even more specifically with an NFT, we're in this Wild West phase of it where it's like you've made your own coin and you've said like, this is silver, this is Marcus on my piece of silver. Do you want to buy my piece of silver and then go on and sell it? Like it's really at that premise. With no verification that it's real silver or how much or whatever. Well, technically there is in the sense that you can confirm that this digital thing is iterated from what we were just describing before all of that about the blockchain. So that's what's unique about them is that, yes, it it damn well is silver irrefutably. It's just, it's your piece of silver with a scribble on it. Okay, so let's try and bring this back to the whole concept of community and ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So as this technology will come and there's no turning it back and it's already pretty current, and we're seeing the, the rapid advance of technology in terms of speed of processing, uh, the volume of data that we can consume, all of this kind of stuff. How do you see that affecting the way the sales and marketing and uh, customer success operation is going to change because of the way customers expect to be interacted with? So if you take the brilliant way that winning by design articulated SaaS and they said focus on the net revenue retention and tie it to impact and then the other things will kind of come with it if you thought about that with like the coins and with a community you could start to get a sense of all other things being equal that you could say this coin represents the realistic expectation of impact that a customer could have. So if we were to think about just, for example, the tech stack that like a sales rep has at their disposal right now, where it's like it's emails, where it's their social network and all of this stuff, it's all very intangible. But you know how you have people showing their W-2s when they go to apply for a job. Well, this is going to be more tangible in that it will provide the trust. So what you could really see is like you get a salesperson and a marketing team together and they build a customer community. I guess what I would really say about it is start to think of salespeople as community builders more so than just change managers. And the impact on the customer can kind of always be present in this design by reverse engineering. That's really opened my thinking. So if you think of salespeople as community builders, this then builds on the idea that I have that what passes for great in sales is no longer fit, or I don't think it ever was, but it's certainly no longer fit for purpose. The qualities I see in the best salespeople, in the best managers, in the best leaders, 
And generally, the best human beings are, they are high on empathy. They're high challenge, high support. They are people who put others first, so they have low self-orientation. They are credible because they do what they say they're going to do, which means that they're reliable. They always make you feel like they have your back. When they show up, they're fully present. They are inquiry-led. They're always curious. These are qualities that the best salespeople have because they are fantastic at generating discretionary effort. Now, this then, what you were just talking about made me think, is there a way that we can start creating compensation plans using these new technologies where the customer is then able to demonstrate their time that uh, when they achieve their value? And your example about winning by design made me think then, well, how do we reward everybody who contributed? Because why, why is it just the salesperson that gets the big fat check? Because marketing played their part. CS has definitely played their part. The renewals team have played their part. Management played their part. Design played their part. And what what I would like to be able to see is, is there a way that we can uh, attribute ownership or contribution using these technologies so we can start driving compensation plans that drive desirable behavior instead of the undesirable behaviors that we see being driven by comp plans and by management? What do you reckon? Those are like, so... Tools like DAOs and coins that are tied to like a community ecosystem thinking could absolutely codify and then deliver the result of those KPIs that align with those philosophies. No question. Like that's where it's going. And to give you an idea of a wireframe of it, I'm passionate about Slack being a disruptive force in sales that's going to take a lot of bad things off the table and put some better ones on the table. And a lot of people think I'm crazy, but... If you thought about, for example, what you just described of this like this village of people that are involved in a B2B sale for something complex, like let's talk about CRM. Let's say that a company is going to like do a big change. They're going to put in a CRM. In fact, they're going to change their CRM. They're going to go like from HubSpot to Salesforce. They're in growth. It's a monumental change across the whole organization. And vitally important and one they cannot afford to get wrong. Yeah, it's a live or die situation, right? And unfortunately, even some of the most elegant practitioners of serving the customer still have such a disparate toolkit available to them to deliver this outcome that from the customer's perspective, they saw a piece of marketing, an SDR talked to them, gave them an insight about why they should care now. They care now. They asked to talk to sales. They talked to sales. Sales did a good job and listened to them. They aligned about a vision. They implement that vision. And then on the other side of install is where an entirely different cast of people who, let's be honest, tend to show up less and less often in the life of the customer as the belief is that, well, the impact has already been delivered. But the truth is that that's like assuming that the Holy Ghost is in the room with you. Like the reality is that there should be a continuity from where the person didn't know a damn thing about you or that you existed, but they had a vague sense that they were in pain to they're like, oh, I would scream this from the mountaintops. These people did everything for me. I would argue that where that really has the chance to happen the most, if we're talking about a big thing like a CRM overhaul, is in the post-installation support. 
And I think one of the nearest term changes you're going to see to the role of salespeople is they're going to start to have to cross train with the delivery team, with the success team, with the onboarding team for the simple fact that the unit economics of SaaS are on impact and on longevity of the account. And all of the stuff you're seeing about companies burning through cash but not selling anything, it's because it's so front loaded on all of the part of the process up to conversion. And then the part after the person's converted where they said, yes, great, here's my money, give me the thing. No one sits around with them with the box from Ikea and helps them put the couch together, let alone comes by two weeks later and says, when you guys sit on the couch watching movies, are you comfortable? And because of that, that impact dissipates and there's all that potential then for like the piranha frenzy to try to snipe accounts from each other and stuff. But we know that those changes that are in response to these big problems, making those moves can be painful. It's like a surgery. So you shouldn't be out there encouraging people to get these surgeries they don't need. And tying it all from this thing back to Slack, I'm just saying that the customer, if they're in a Slack channel with a particular tech solution, and if they got there early in the process, like let's say around the time that the SDR would be asking them for a meeting, if they weren't just asking them for a meeting, but they were adding them to a community on Slack, let's just say, and they're now talking with other customers and other sellers in your company, it's not just you. They have this interface with the solution. Ah, right. Very elegant. Very nice. So then... Let's say, for example, someone says, I don't know if I want Salesforce or HubSpot or Zoho or whatever the, the name on the logo might be. They just know they have a problem. If When we think about channels and ecosystems and stuff, it's not a loss if your customer goes to where they're going to stay and get impact. And if you are able to make some revenue where in the zero-sum right. game you were playing before, you would make none, that's still a win for everyone. Okay, so this is where... Another concept which I've been working on will come in beautifully. This, oh, I'm really pleased we're having this conversation. So uh, one, one thing I'm working on is this concept of ecosystem-based marketing and ecosystem-based selling. So the initial, the, the Kickstarter on this is having a primary quarterly message and then secondary monthly messages that underpin the primary message. And each of the four messages is a question and every one of the partners within the uh, the ecosystem answers that question from their special point of view. And then everyone within the community shares everyone else's content to their network because it's a question that theoretically, if we've got this right, is uh, on our shared addressable markets minds. So we're addressing it, but we're giving them access to the point of uh, entry that they want. So we're playing that game with the customer. So we're giving them this solution that is best suited to them. But that person then, their job is to build trust by being credible, reliable, developing intimacy, having low self-orientation so that they can trust them. And then they're trusted by both sides. Because to my mind, there is an absolute insanity in encouraging and actually building your business model on the basis of going cold when you can sell hot. Mm -hmm. where you have a nine, eight to nine out of 10 probability of closing and an eight to nine uh, out of 10 probability that someone will take that meeting with you because of the person's credibility that is shared across both uh, with the, both the vendor and the buyer. And what you're describing 
explains and connotes the explosion of people focusing on personal brand. I'm no master of personal brand like at all. But what I am proud of, like in a utilitarian way about how I represent myself and I show up is that people have an understanding of what they're going to get when they talk to me. And they have a reasonable expectation from the personal brand. And I think that that's really what's going on is that we used to ask for an initial meeting, like back in the old networking, you'd ask someone out to coffee, right? And you'd have this whole back and forth. And that's fun. But with the scale of doing work remote and being able to function in a global marketplace, the reality is like, how do you distribute that? And part of the answer is the personal brand, because what it should do is show someone why they're going to take the call. So that if you find an opportunity, something's happened in time, and you suggest it to another person, if you've positioned your personal brand correctly, it's not about the likes, it's not about how many followers you have, it's about the likelihood of the person that you want to work with you, being able to quickly look at your, for example, LinkedIn profile and go, oh, that makes sense why I would talk to this person, rather than saying, I'm intrigued, I need to find out more, or they have a nice dog. That is the only metric that matters. Will they get in touch below the surface, out of the spotlight? I've had people 16, 17 years following my content before they eventually get in touch. Now, I'm not suggesting that's the best way forward. Um, But what it does tell you is that sometimes you've just got to have the timing right. Because unless your content resonates with them and it is timely, it is relevant, and it is valuable, it's just going to be passing interest at best, or it will just be an interruption and just lost over. So it's not your prospect's fault that it takes 16 years for them to eventually part with cash. Uh, That's on you because you weren't relevant, or they were not in your target market at that time. They may have to grow into it. Um, They may grow out of it. Um, So again, I'm really intrigued by all of this because... What I'm seeing is a lot of organizations still hanging on to what they think made them successful, which is a lot of brute force. You're obviously very closely uh, aligned with uh, changes in technology uh, within the sales space. So what I'm curious about is what's now possible? If we we look at an SDR or uh, someone who would be appointment setting 10 years ago, they had... I guess LinkedIn had just about arrived and they had data. But what have they got now? If if you were building your tech stack for your outbound sales team from scratch, what would that look like now? So in my, like where I could just order whatever I wanted, I would have kind of- Anything you like. I would first ask them to be participating in particular communities so that there would be this trust of knowledge and support available to them to then have a strategic ability to leverage the emerging tech. Because the reality is that right now, we have this exponential growth in tech of solutions. And the average tech stack is like 20 solutions deep. But What you really need is a single repository of information and activity just because like humans have a short memory and that we're very much like a blank slate every day. So you you need some place for your efforts to accumulate. I argue that right now, until something better comes along, that's a CRM. But if we talk about, I run into people that do founder-led growth that just use SEP 
they're just using their engagement platform. Like they're just using outreach. They're not using Salesforce. And they look at me like I'm insane when I'm like, well, you should use Salesforce too. They say, why? And I say, well, what happens when you want to scale what was starting now? So the first part I would give them is an ability to be able to understand who they're talking to and who those people are to each other and to have an awareness of what's important to those people, to be able to scale up above just the normal human memory ability to remember those things. That's the thing that tech can give you now. And with machine learning and with intelligence, you can then replicate a particular lead. So the the starting point for what my modern tech stack would be is I'm not even going to name particular softwares because six weeks from now, they'll be out of date if you're really looking to the cutting edge. The real thing is to think about like strategic functionality in the tech stack. And what I always want to know is what's the recurring cost of a piece of the tech? How does it impact the functionality of the rest of the tech, like through the API, for example? And does it act as a conduit or a barrier to those activities that generate revenue the quickest? Because I think that the biggest mistake people make is they grab a piece of technology that generated a giant result for a giant organization, and then they slap it down on top of what they're doing when they might be five people. And the mm-hmm. truth is that they those five people might be able to achieve more with a notebook and a cell phone than... <laughs> they can with this like high powered howitzer of a solution. So the real idea would be you give these people a single source of truth and awareness, a a library like this mental palace thing, you give them a robust place for people to greet them. That could be um, like, I think Zoom is very much like the silent movie level of this experience. I think if you look at exciting things like um, Topia is one example, there are just, there are these novel ways to have the experience be meaningful and engaging. And I think that's a portion of the tech stack that doesn't even necessarily have a name yet, but that really matters, which is like well, buyer, ex- buyer experience. Well, I, 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 I'm starting to picture it as a war room kind of environment where it's a virtual world. And in fact, that a company called Pentacle Business School have developed this uh, environment called Cube, Q-U-B-E, which uh, I really love the concept. And what you do is you get people working collaboratively in parallel, asynchronously, remotely. And you have all eyes on the one problem. And there are frameworks that they put people in these different environments and rooms and there are places that you can store everything. And I'm starting to think, how do we create these war rooms where uh, we can get together with the customer and then we can bring partners in and we can just show the bits that need to be shown so we can create a secure environment so the partner and we can work together. And uh, we're bringing the partners in to deal with these messy, intertwined, wicked problems instead of just coming in to try and peddle the point solution. Because I think a lot of salespeople nowadays have, because of the way the comp plan run works and because of the way SaaS payment models work, they have to go for transactional selling. Now, something like Salesforce is not a transactional sale. It is what, you know, it's probably the most important investment that business is going to make for the next 10, 15 years. And it will determine, it, it could be a, um, a, a, a survive or die kind of decision if they get it wrong. Absolutely. Um, And I I see this with a lot of software. You know, there are 900 apps on average within a big enterprise. 
that's a lot of vendors. And the, the poor buggers in IT must be having ulcers when you add to that the acts of idiocy that human beings bring with them and then their own devices and the lack of security and everything else. Yeah, it must be a nightmare. Well, I would just say to completely answer your question about the tech stack is to divorce yourself from thinking about a particular solution or logo and to think instead in terms of intended outcome and what's the least steps we can take to get there. And I want to know the lazy man's way. I want to find, you know, in my mind, like you, you know, you interviewed Patrick William Joyce and like, I loved that interview. And what I kind of took away from it was that to answer your question really well about like, what's the highest iteration of what's possible with the tech stack? I would say the ability to recognize the Patrick William Joyce's in the crowd and to empower people to go down that road rather than the stacking up higher what doesn't work. The biggest thing I see with like all of this tech debt is that you have a a community of well-intentioned people working very hard in good faith to do. See, like a lot of managers have this assumption that people aren't listening to them and aren't doing whatever. But the reality is that they probably haven't articulated what needs to be done and achieved buy-in. And then they're scaling that fecklessness out into their outbound activity. And then if you look at someone like Joyce, he's this shrine of impact and effectiveness. Like that's really who the guy is. And it's not, it's not enough to say, wouldn't it be nice if another one of that guy walked in? Like that guy might never walk in again. We don't know that. But what we should be able to do with our tech stack as a company is to be able to maximize our opportunity for those people to rise up amongst our ranks. And then whenever possible, ask them pointedly, why is this working? And how could I show other people how to do it and enshrine it? And again, what I'm really excited about is the ability to start replicating other people's processes and systems very quickly within organizations. So I'm starting to use technologies like mobile practice within my clients and able to help people practice little moments of communication to use it to uh, train people how to coach so that we can get managers who uh, just suddenly woke up one morning and found themselves to be a manager to do the stuff that is high value. High value management activity is not being a supervisor and is not doing the work you're paying other people to do. It's building the bench for uh, succession planning. It's training and developing your people. It's coaching. It's uh, windscreen training on the job. It's spending time developing them uh, on pastoral activity, on strategy, systems development, planning, working with other uh, departments, developing yourself. That's what managers should be doing. Instead, what are they doing? They spend their time beating their chest, pounding the table and trying to drive people to do more acts of idiocy. And because of that, like that was the actual thing that I first said when you were telling me like what's possible with Salesforce, the best answer I could have given you was my first intuition about it, which was at the same time that I was running into all these walls in my Salesforce instance that impeded my ability to sell and to do the very mission of what they said they were paying me to do. I had a manager who made, I knew for a fact, five times as much money as me, whose job it was to call me on the phone and ask me for the same information that I had already written in Salesforce, which he wasn't even looking at. And when I would genuinely, I wasn't even being cute, I would say, Mike, did you not see this? Like I gave you a report. He'd say, oh, I don't even open that. I just, I I need to ask people. I need to, and this light bulb went off after one of these like just torture sessions of a conversation with him where he shared with me the following, 
I know what I'm talking about because I have two Porsches in my driveway. How many Porsches are in your driveway? And the only thing I could do for my sanity in that moment was to mutter as I was hanging up, how many Porsches can you drive at once though? And I hung up on him. And then I said, you know what? What Salesforce can do is get rid of that guy at scale because <clears throat> there's so many of that guy that all he does is tells people to tell him what's going on. And that's no longer a necessary thing anymore. Like that is taken care of by a correctly deployed CRM. Like the whole notion of a person calling everyone and saying, you need to write this down, you need to write this down. Self-discipline plus a good system should be enough for that. And if you don't have people that are that bought in, then you hired the wrong people. And there's no slave driver you're going to be able to have like lording over them that's going to get you that outcome. However, a CRM with people that are aligned can get everyone moving in that direction and can eliminate some of that toxicity of micromanagement and stupidity. And the other beautiful thing is that with enough time, a CRM is able to be a yardstick of institutional effectiveness so that when you have someone who believes that because they have two Porsches, they know how to sell something, you can ask them to go up against a report with their Porsches. And, you know, they're not going to. <laughs> Eric, sadly, we've come to time. This has been a fascinating conversation. You've got a golden ticket and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot Eric, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you give him he would have probably have ignored? You can change your mind. When I was 23, the all of the pain in my life that was self-inflicted came from how sure of myself I was and how smart I was. Um so yeah, change your mind. Very good advice. And changing your mind is not a sign of weakness for anyone who thinks it is. It's actually a sign of maturity and courage because idiots can't change their mind because their ego is hooked to the initial decision. Excellent. Okay, so content-wise, what, what do you consume? What do you recommend? Uh, so I'm a huge, huge fan of like really specific, really weird niche TV. Like for example, <laughs> Fargo, the TV series. I think if you want to know what's going on geopolitically right now and understand it, just watch season three of Fargo. I would highly encourage people to consume Jaron Lanier's content. He's the ethicist at Microsoft. And he's one of the first inventors of virtual and augmented reality as a concept like long, long ago. And how do I spell his name again? J-A-R-O-N-L-A-N-I-E-R. Excellent. Okay. I would also absolutely encourage people to seek out someone named Robert Anton Wilson, who described himself as a guerrilla ontologist. And it was his job to make people less sure of themselves. Excellent. I like that. And his biggest thing was reminding people that the map is not the territory. Okay. And... I think if I could hand people just those things, I feel like I'm doing a disservice that it's all men that I've listed or male-driven products, but that's at the moment what I would drop down. Fantastic. Okay, well, thank you for that. Um, I, I would recommend Farnham Street if you haven't followed that. It's F-A-R-N-A-M dot blog. Fantastic. Uh, lots of really good, insightful psychological insights. Dave Brock's newsletter and uh, blog really good and matt mcdarby uh, has got some really interesting ideas on management his divine comedy of sales management Ooh. is well worth a read 
Um, so it's the uh, seven div- divine qualities of great leadership. I'm a big fan of Dante, so I would go. take that walk. <laughs> Excellent. Eric, how can people get hold of you? I am Eric, E-R-I-C, Steves, S-T-E-E, V as in Victor, E-S, on LinkedIn. My nickname on dark social channels is The Bears Force, and you can find me those places. And then my company that I run with my girlfriend and life partner and business partner is called Project Kickass. Very fine. That outro definitely warrants deeper discussion, but we'll have to do that another time. Eric, Steves, thank you. Thank you so much, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, and God knows if you haven't, you're dead. So please like, comment, share, tag. Tag somebody who really needs to have a listen and maybe pay some attention to uh, what Eric was talking about in terms of DAOs and uh, how Web 3.0 is going to be affecting us. If you want to get in touch with me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.